G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Make no mistake, you're going to live someplace for eternity. The essential you will live on for eternity. The soul was built to last. And you're either going to be in the presence of God, which is where you've always wanted to be, or in the presence of self. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks for joining me. Coming up, it's the last part of the last message in the Heaven series. It's actually about hell. So far, Pastor Jeff has encouraged us to find peace by listening to Jesus, who spoke about both heaven and hell. This weekend, I want to talk to you about hell. Whoa, Pastor Jeff, why would we talk about that right now? This is the time when attentive ears are listening. Besides that, it would be irresponsible for Christ's followers to talk about heaven without any mention of hell because Jesus emphasised both. Let's hear the rest of the message now from Romans chapter 1, verse 24. When modern people think about hell, they think of it as if God, in some kind of a Vincent Price voice, really deep and dark, puts you in a place called hell and says to you, now I'm going to put you down there with the devil and his angels and you're going to get it. Where hell is a place where God says, ah, you deserve it. I'm going to get you. It's time for an eternal smackdown. (laughs) But that's not the hell Jesus talked about. Even though we've been influenced by things like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, even though it is metaphorical, Dante's Inferno. But the message Jesus gives us relates three primary ideas. Number one, that you are outside the presence of God. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate, that hell is a place, even though he uses the metaphor of Gehenna, the place outside of Jerusalem, it is a place where we are outside the presence of God completely. In verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The focus is on where you are and where God is and the suffering that that kind of isolation and separation causes. That is the point of the parable. Where there is no God, there can be no good thing. Hell is the absence of the presence and the influence of God himself. Somebody might say, great, you mean I get to live in a realm apart from God? Great, pass the beer, we'll have a great party. No more conviction, no more moral law. Ah, but that's the point. That's the way you've lived all your life and the trajectory only continues into eternity. But the one thing you forgot was that where there is no God, there can be no good thing. God is the source of life itself. There won't be any beer in hell. God is the source of every ingredient that makes up beer. I didn't say beer, but every ingredient that makes it up. All good things are gone. Joy, love, wisdom. They're all inextricably tied to the presence of God. Right now, even in your rebellion, think about this. You enjoy, whether you admit it or not, the beauty and the wonder of God's creation. 
In Matthew 5, Jesus said, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What does he mean by that? You experience so much of the goodness of God right here on earth, whether you follow him or not, because that's just the gracious goodness and staggering generosity of God. But think about it for a moment. What if God were not here? What if God removed his presence, his influence? I read an article this past week. What would happen if the sun goes out? We're told that within eight minutes, darkness would cover the entire earth. The moon would no longer be visible because it would not be reflected any longer by the sun. Photosynthesis would stop, which means plants would stop producing oxygen. The ocean surfaces would begin to freeze. The earth's surface would begin to cool. And everything, almost instantly, every living thing on this planet would begin to die. The point is, remove our planet from the source of the sun, we die. Remove our souls from the ultimate source of life and existence, darkness falls and disintegration and ruin begins. Folks, hell's not a party. It's a funeral without the reception. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his face are we able to thrive and achieve our highest potential. And if we were to lose the presence of God totally and completely, we would lose our capacity for love and receiving love, as well as our capacity to experience anything good. After all, the wealth, and this is what Jesus tells through the prodigal son parable, through parable after parable, the wealth of the father is reserved for his sons and daughters who live in his presence, love, passion, and the pursuit of the father. Now, is that not logical to a great degree? Come on, where there's no light, darkness runs rampant, right? But the more powerful the light is, the more restricted the darkness. What is true physically is also true metaphysically. What impact would the soul, the essential you, you know you're more than your body, what impact would it have if the light of God were to be totally withdrawn? It would be truly the darkest night of the soul for all of eternity. That's hell. So number one, you're outside of the presence of God and you feel lost, disconnected from your creator's moorings. You are lost at sea without compass or sail. Two, your soul, your very existence is in ruin. So you're separated, but you're also disintegrating in ruin with no end in sight. The Bible says in verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in torment in this flame. Somebody might say, you know, Pastor Jeff, that's, come on, man, that's not, that's not literal fire. Do you know what? I agree. I don't think the fire is literal in the same way that I don't think the streets of gold in heaven are literal. That's not the point. But what you have to remember is anytime Jesus uses a symbol to communicate something, the reality is far more intense than the symbol could communicate. The symbol is just a symbol. Heaven is far greater than you could ever imagine. Hell is far worse than you could ever imagine. And a common image in relation to hell is fire because fire represents disintegration. Think about it just practically for a moment. Who are the most angry people that you know? I mean, they're just angry all the time, dissatisfied, anxious, depressed. There's no person 
more angry than the one who thinks they're entitled to something and they haven't received it. What kind of soul disintegration then? Does self-centeredness, self-absorption, egotism, or egocentrism, where it's all about you, what kind of effect would that have in eternity, knowing the effects we see in the here and now? Piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, you think everybody's against you, and all the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. That's hell. Living in a world where you're just angry and bitter and it increases with moment after moment. And the point of Jesus' story is that what if when we die, we don't end? But spiritually, our life extends on into eternity. Our attitudes here continue on there, unchecked by the conviction and goodness of God. This is where it all comes down to this. Hell then is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on forever and ever. Which means that hell is simply one's identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. That's hell. You notice in the story that Jesus tells the parable that the rich man has no name. Why? Why is he not given a name? We have Lazarus, the poor man, but then we have the rich man. When Jesus tells a parable, he usually gives a name. But in this story, and then there was a rich man. Folks, the real truth is that he's lost his identity. He's lost himself because his identity rested in his wealth, in everything that could serve his own personal gain. So everything that built into the self while he was living here has dissipated in eternity. Therefore, he has no self. He has no identity. It's like a body that disintegrates when there's no food around. The soul disintegrates when the things that fed it on earth are now gone. The soul, the essential you, never connected to God. So now the soul is malnourished forever. So there is separation. There is ruin. And finally, and lastly, there's isolation. That's what a lack of humility does, right? Pride demands autonomy. Pride uses people. When you think the world is all about you, you use people to get what you want. You even use God to hopefully get what you want. You hope to get God on board with your plan. You never think about getting on board with his for your life. You're going to live life your way and that's it. And people who are really treading a dangerous line here, you will hear them say things like this. Well, no one really knows for sure about heaven and hell. Well, you know, really to each his own. Everybody must decide what is right and wrong for him or her. Or I don't have to go to church if I live a good life. At the core of all these statements is a commonality. And that's your unwillingness to change the trajectory of your life to conform to objective truth. Remember what we said in the beginning, C.S. Lewis told us the warning of our culture is that our culture would influence our thoughts about eternity. We think we can create our own realities. We cannot. Spiritual reality is unchanging. And there are people all around us that would much rather have their freedom than salvation. And that's simply because they've never humbled themselves to seek God with all their hearts and souls and minds which would be the logical thing to do in this created order of perpetual love and wonder. Had they done so, God would have revealed himself and they would have come to the knowledge that had they glorified God, they would have gained power and freedom, not lost it. 
That's why hell is a tragic irony. One's refusal to pursue God ruins any potential in the future for ultimate greatness. Now stay with me. I'm almost finished here. Here is the key, folks. In Romans 1.24, we're told that if we insist on going our way without God, if we suppress the knowledge and wisdom of God, in other words, the problem is not a lack of knowledge, it's the suppression of the knowledge we have of God, then God will hand us over to our depraved minds. What does that mean? Here's what hell ultimately is, folks. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from him. What could be more fair than that? You spent your entire life running from God. You don't need God. You don't want God. You want to do your own thing. You want to be the God of God. So God says in the words of C.S. Lewis, not my will, but yours be done. It's the ultimate ramification of a free will decision. The trajectory of your life has gone away from God. It will continue in eternity. Folks, listen, do you understand what we mean when we talk about trajectory? A person who has met Jesus, truly met him, the trajectory of their life changes from self-absorption to self-denial, from self-centeredness to other-centeredness, from pride to humility, from hoarding to generosity, from seeking wealth to seeking God. From apathy to empathy, from self-worship and self-love to worshiping, pursuing, serving, and loving God, from self-law to pursuing the precepts of God. And there should be some level of consistency between who we say we are and the trajectory of our lives. Now, wait a minute, though. Trajectory is not the same as perfection. Your life goes like this, up and down, up and down, but ultimately, the trajectory is moving toward God. You're going to fail in life. There are going to be some moments of sadness, some desert experiences, but the tra trajectory overall is moving toward God, which helps us to understand that hell is not about the bad things people have done, but about the attitudes that led them to do it. Who are you really? What are you really about? And nobody knows that really but you and God. And according to Scripture, who are the most vulnerable? to missing an eternal existence with Christ. The rich, you and me, remember what we've talked about. We're the rich ones, folks. One billion people live on $1 a day. Yes, Jeff, but they have to depend on God because they have nothing else. You're right, they do. In fact, I've lived in these parts of the world and I can tell you there's an incredible humility and dependence on God in poverty. Poverty does not seem to cause one to denounce God. Affluence does. Affluence has its downside. Jesus said in Matthew 19, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You say, why? Why is it difficult for someone rich? Folks, this isn't rocket science because they are distracted by affluence. They have other things to do other than live for God. There's parties to go to. There are banquets to attend. There's money to be had. There's goods to be raised. There's cars and houses to be bought. Affluence breeds self-absorption, self-centeredness. We of all people in the West have to be cued in to the temptations of an affluent life. And perhaps one of the best things God could do for us in matters of eternity is strip all of that away so that we would see how fragile that it is so that we would know that there's only one being big enough to fill the void of our heart, soul, and mind, and that's God. Listen carefully to what I'm saying here. Hitler and Stalin 
may be in hell for their attitudes that led them to commit their atrocities. And when we think of hell, we think of Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, but they're gonna have some company. Those same attitudes are in us. We just don't have the means or the power or position to play them out. You need transformation. And if the trajectory in our life has not changed, you gotta repent. You gotta confess, you gotta come to the cross for forgiveness. You gotta go hard after God. You gotta be honest with yourself. You gotta admit that you're still about yourself. You do pursue God, but you pursue God to get good stuff from him. You don't pursue God for the sake of God. It's still all about you, which is why you don't sacrifice, serve, or demonstrate generosity. Christ is for your purposes, not you for his. And if that's the way you continue to live, if the trajectory of your life gravitate towards self now, then God will allow that same trajectory into infinity. Make no mistake, you're gonna live someplace for eternity. You can't destroy non-material. The essential you will live on for eternity. The soul was built to last. And you're either gonna be in the presence of God, which is where you've always wanted to be, or in the presence of self and all the ramifications that go with it. Isolation, separation, ruin. Now this is the good part of the message. Folks, do you understand this is why God devises ways, stays up late at night, racks his brain to call you into relationship without violating your freedom to choose or reject him? That's what love does. Say, wait a minute, pastor, I read the story. I've been reading it while you've been talking a little bit here and I noticed that the rich man cries out for mercy and God doesn't give it to him. Why not? Look at what the text says. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What is he saying to Father Abraham? He's saying, you never told us. You never told my family. You didn't warn us. You didn't give us mercy. That shows you the arrogance of the rich man because this life is riddled, inundated, saturated with the mercy of God. Every time a friend invited you to church, you said no. Every single time your son or daughter said, mom, dad, please come and hear the gospel, you said no. Every single time your mother or father begged you to change the trajectory of your life, but you said no. Every single time you felt a moment of the eternal and you knew there was something beyond. Every Christmas when something from beyond cracked your hard outer shell, penetrated your heart with God's indescribable gift where he gave his own son for you, but you dismissed it. Every Easter when the idea of the resurrection resonated with what you know to be true on the inside that you were built to last. Every joyful experience where you were tempted to give thanks to somebody for this awesome experience. Every friendship that reminded you of the ultimate friend. Every dissatisfaction that reminded you of hope in another world. All of these and more are the extensions of the mercy and grace of God. And that's why he has stayed up late at night. I know it's a metaphor, but it speaks volumes to us. God created a way by which we could be redeemed and reconciled, forgiven and transformed. And he calls out to you almost every day of your life. He sends moments, the birth of a child, the beauty of love, the desire for belonging, the hunger of another world. He sends people with words of encouragement, with images of the eternal, with reminders of what you already know to be true, that there is a God who has revealed himself in creation and wonder who calls you into relationship. 
He sends mystery, the unexplainable, the unpredictable, the events of your life, whose only plausible explanation is God. And he sends eternity, accountability in your heart and soul, a sense of beyond that you know is there, a soul that has lost its way from its home and has been desperately searching to try to find its way back there. But most importantly, he sends mystery, he sends eternity, but he sent his son to die for your sins, to forgive you of your self-centeredness because we always have it. Everyone does. But he wants to inject you with new life, to change the trajectory of your life, to begin to defeat this self-centeredness and to pursue and desire a relationship with God who will not only change you, but change the things you want to do. How have you responded to that mercy? Because you can't say to God when you meet him that you didn't give me enough information. You didn't tell me about this day. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Have you humbled yourself? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Have you believed in the Son that the Father has given? The indescribable gift. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Every life has a trajectory. It's hard to judge one another because no one really knows the thoughts of man except God. But you know what they are. Has the spirit of the living God humbled you and changed the trajectory of your life where you're more about others than about yourself? Are you self-absorbed and self-centered and self-aggrandizing or are you compassionate? Has the forgiveness of God spark something in you to live your life for a purpose greater than yourself. You know in your heart whether you're doing that or not. You know what trajectory your life is on. My friend that I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, I don't know where he is. And I couldn't tell his sister that I did, and I didn't. I think I said something like, he'll be okay, but I don't really know what that even means. But God knows the heart of man. You should be able to see and notice when the trajectory of a life is headed toward God and away from self, come on. You know, as you've heard me speaking, you know the trajectory of your life. And I'm asking you to change course because God is the ultimate giver of freedom. If you use your freedom to pursue self, he will allow you to do that all through eternity which will lead to isolation, disintegration, and ruin. Turn your heart toward God and meet him in heaven. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness. And I ask you in Christ's name right now to open the eyes of the blind, to help us to see reality for what it is, not what we've tried to create it to be. And then to humble ourselves at the cross of Jesus Christ For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. It is not his will that anyone should perish, but we have a decision to make. And I pray for all those listening, the decision would be today to fall on their knees, to confess their sins, to ask Jesus to forgive them, and to ask the spirit of the living God to come into their lives and change the trajectory of their lives away from self and onto eternal things, God and his unshakable kingdom that nothing will ever touch. In Christ's name, amen.
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.